Hello. We are going live for the 100th Life Stories. See if Faraz is around. We're getting a slight tour of Faraz's place there. Faraz, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly, loud and clear. Give me one second. How's that? Yeah, no, no, good. Good, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Looking forward to the weekend. Very much so, very much so. Faraz is a G. Someone's bigging you up there, so... Um... He's lying. I paid him to say that. <laughs> we can get some feedback at the end of it to see to see how it all goes. Yeah, no problem. But yeah, no, thank you very much for joining me. It's really exciting to, to have this. As, as you put on your post there, and as I've mentioned, this is the 100th interview that I've done with people. Um, so it's pretty incredible. For, from my perspective, it's something that I wanted to do for a while. I've, I've worked with a lot of different people in the industry and probably about 15 years. And it's always been talking about technology, education, these sort of things. But you don't often find out about how someone got to where they did why they do what they do and to me that's really interesting is like people's drives motivations um so that's where this has come from and yeah so doing a hundred's great and uh, i really appreciate well, i pre appreciate everyone's time but certainly for you going live i uh i'm appreciative and certainly for dressing up for the occasion <laughs> sorry i think i'm uh overshadowing you i shouldn't be i should be kind of underdressed but anyway this is this is this is the fantastic bow tie um, that my daughter picked out this morning. So I had to I had to wear it. Otherwise, if she sees this on playback and I'm not wearing the colour she picked, I'll be in big trouble. <laughs> Some may say overcompensation, but that's I wouldn't say that. So you know, it's I'm sure, I'm sure what you've got to say won't be uh, will will be as good as the outfit. <laughs> So, yeah, so just in terms of starting out for you then, one of the questions that I always like to start with is just where you're from and, and talk to me about how, how what motivated you to get into this area. Yeah, um, so basically I'm born and bred in the uh, United Kingdom in Kent, uh, the Garden of England, as they used to call it. I'm not sure it's the Garden of England anymore. Um, so there's a lovely little part of the, of the, of the Kent uh, in Medway Towns, um, and basically just grew up there. And I was, it was a predominantly, I would have to say, uh, a Caucasian environment. Uh, a lot of a lot of white people. There wasn't many Asians or, or blacks or anything like that. So um, that kind of um, was difficult. But at the same time, really grew my personality and grew my sort of endeavors and the ability to kind of stand on my own two feet. And uh, I wouldn't change that for the world. Um, that really, really helped me grow. Um, and then from there, you know, schooling life that you go through and you you know you play your Sunday league football and, and the usual things that we get involved with to try and my, my parents really encouraged me or my mum did anyway um to really go through the sporting route you know it kept me out of trouble basically it was that sort of discipline and drive to say do something on your weekends um that keeps you out of trouble basically um which did and I just played football and I I grew up to love football, um, any sporting, give me a racket, give me a ball, anything that involved coordination was, was, was pretty good. Um, and, and, and yeah, my love for kind of what I do now, physiotherapy, would have grown from my numerous amounts of, I guess, sporting injuries that I sustained 
on my kind of course. I mean, I played football to quite a good level, had, had a few injuries and always was intrigued by what the physiotherapist did on the table. You know, why would he assess my knee when it was an ankle problem or you know, why would he look at my back when it was a, a knee problem? And I'm thinking, you know, that it was really interesting. And then the whole rehab side of things of, you know, making me stand with my eyes closed and just, just random things. And I always said to myself and I said to my mum that if I can't play sport for a living, I like to do something with sport. Um, and then it was a case of, do I go down the sports journalism route? Cause I was quite good at English or do I go down the sort of science and sort of, you know, physical education route and it was a letter that I ended up uh, choosing and, and that's where I am today. So what motivated you to go down that route rather than the, the journalistic option? Yeah I mean the thing is what motivated me was that whole you know the whole ego of being around professional athletes which we all have uh, growing up as kids you know the, the role models that we have and we see on TV and we say, see the physio running out, you know, and then you see the sports journalism, you know, writing the papers and the column on the Times or the Daily Mirror, whatever it may be. And I'm thinking, what would appeal to me more? And I thought being on the field and being in a sort of a team environment, a team game where people are relying on me as well, um, would be something that I would uh, kind of thrive upon. And, and that's why I ended up going down the sort of sports physiotherapy, uh, physiotherapy route rather than the sort of background paper writing or you know interviewing sort of uh on, on, on papers or the tv and so in terms when did you make that decision because that did that guide what you did at college university um, and that the progression through school etc yeah exactly of course you know most of us when we get to the 16 or 18 you know, we don't know what we want to do at university anyway we just kind of go with the flow and we get sort of peer pressure from friends, colleagues, family. You know, you should try and do this. You should try and do that. You're good at this. Um, but ultimately, I think for people watching this, you have to make your own decision, right? You, you make your own mistakes and, you, and that's how you grow. Um, and I would say at the age of sort of 16, I was playing, well, you could say, uh, quite a high level of professional football at Gillingham Football Club in, in the YTS uh, group. And my mum said to me, listen, play football, but do education on the side you know don't neglect your education because a lot of those people are playing on a weekend with you won't make it um and you know they have nothing to fall back on so I obviously went to college I went to university uh, sorry I went to school and I carried on my A-levels and I was also playing football on the side um I would say probably at the age of 16 is when I did my research uh, a lot of folders and bring binders and and we didn't have obviously iPads at the time so I would have been going to the library and clicking on dialing up the internet connection and finding out what does a journalist do? What does a sports physiotherapist do? What's the pay scale and the pay brackets and you know, all those sort of things that you explore before you actually make that decision. So I would say probably I knew at the age of 16 or so, I'd say probably 17 that I wanted to do sports physiotherapy uh, or I wanted to do some form of uh, professional sport, whether that was football, tennis, cricket, I hadn't decided but I wanted to go into sort of sports physiotherapy around 16, 17 years old. And in, in terms of helping you make that decision with people at college, did, did, were you encouraged, discouraged? Did people say that that was unrealistic or, or, or was it encouraged? Um, I wouldn't have said it was unrealistic or, or I was discouraged. I just was told that to make it big as a physio, if that sounds great, you know, make it big as a physio. I'm a physio, I'm not a cardiothoracic surgeon, but <laughs> I'm a physiotherapist. But to make it big, which meant, I guess, representing your country or, you know, being on the ATP tour or, or I don't know what you class as big these days, but um, they just said that 
requires a lot of hard work and you know you to get there you're going to have to really really kind of pull out all strings and network as much as you can and gain some international experience and and you know really kind of explore all avenues and I wouldn't say I was ever discouraged um they thought sometimes my you know my, my family background said to me well if you're going to be a physiotherapist learning about the body well why don't you go one level extra and just be a medic you know why don't you become a doctor and that didn't really appeal to me you know sitting behind a chair as a general practitioner and prescribing drugs and and that didn't appeal to me and I wanted to be out and about and seeing injuries firsthand and then being able to deal with them you know and and then rehab them and having that sense of satisfaction by starting off seeing an injury and then kind of growing that and rehabbing that till three months six months nine months down the line depending on what the pathology was to see them go and score a goal was was my kind of reward you know what I mean yeah yeah and so how did that manifest itself from going to university yeah, I mean, again, so that was a case of, you know, hit 18, did your A-levels. Um, at A-levels, you know, you have to choose something that's related to your field, I guess. Uh, some people don't. Some people just choose whatever and then see where the program takes them. I decided to do sort of uh, biology and physical education were my two sort of core subjects that I needed to, to go and pursue a physiotherapy degree. Um, and the other one was, like they say, you know, the DOS subject that you just kind of just do because you need three A-levels. And I did geography, but I had a passion for geography and learning about the world, you know? So all in all, those three sort of combined quite nicely together to then prepare me for the next step of my life, which was, yes, going to university. And then, you know, being alone, being independent, having to set your alarm, no one there to kind of mollycoddle you. You've got to do your own laundry. You've got to do your own dishes. If you want to work, you work. If you don't, you stay in the, stay at home in, 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 the, in the halls of residence. Do you know what I mean? So it, well, you know, you've been at university. University just grows you professionally and personally, I think. And uh, it's one of those things that I would always recommend people to do. You know, it's the best time of your life. And so what was it like at university? How did you find that experience? Oh, again, I would echo what I just said. I mean, it's the best three to four years of your life. Um, you grow as an individual. You learn from failures. Um, you know, you fail exams and you have a kick up the backside that you need to kind of get going again because, you know, this is your life it's, it's make or break you know if you want to go and sweep streets or you know working no disrespect to anybody working stacking shelves in Sainsbury's but that's what my mum used to say to me you know if you want to do some of those kind of jobs then crack on do what you want to do but if you want to achieve something if you want to be a person and you want to kind of achieve your goal of getting to where you want to get to then you've got to get up for your lectures you've got to be disciplined and I think university if you have that sort of um, structure around you that support structure that means friends and, and, and family members as well around um it makes it a little bit easier you know and, and and you know you need to obviously have your course tutors as well but they're so engulfed in just delivering a lecture to the 220 or masses of people in that sort of auditorium you don't have that one-to-one -one kind of attention so it really is yourself it's you against you, you against yourself if you want to do it you will do it um, and I think I had a good team around me. I had good, I made good friendships around me uh, on my course and on other course, like, for example, people studying MBBS medicine, for example, or radiology, which were all sort of in my lecture hall. So you always bounced ideas off each other. So it wasn't just physiotherapy. Um, that was more in towards the second and third and fourth years. But the first year was getting to know people and getting to know your surroundings and culture and the new environment you're in, you know, male, female, Chinese, Blacks, Asians, Pakistanis. There were so many different people. Um, and that really helped me grow and, and get through my university degree. Yeah, no, it sounds great. Were there ever any periods in there where you thought maybe this isn't the right decision for me or this, this I should have done something else? 
No, I think that happened when I, uh, once I'd graduated, I think. And I'd gone through the whole hard draft of, you know, all those essays and literature reviews and internet searches that you have to do while sitting in the library till midnight and, and doing those sort of things, you know, and meeting deadlines. But I think during the course, I was so in, engrossed in having fun, making friendships, you know, playing football on a Wednesday afternoon, student union on a Thursday night, and then weekends having that sort of time to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to step away from that university life and I'm going to go and be Faraz with my family or, you know, go see my mum, my dad, you know, my brother was at university, you know, so it was always like try and do something different on the weekends and then come back into that zone. So we had that sort of uh, escape route, I guess you can say, uh, temporarily. Um, but I never, I would say in four years of being at uni, I would never say that I regretted that I'd chosen to do physiotherapy or I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. I mean, granted, there were times where we were doing some modules that were boring. I mean, that's normal in, in anyone's undergraduate program, and especially in physiotherapy. There are three or four different forms of physiotherapy or different modules that were completely over my head. And I'm thinking, yeah, if I had done something that was more sports physiotherapy, or if there was a course that was just solely for that, maybe I would have benefited more. But back in the day, Obviously, 17, 18 years ago, the core structure is or was what it was. And hopefully things are changing for the better in the future. Yeah. So when you did graduate then, what, what was the plan? Did you, did you have an idea? Had the placements helped you? Was sport still something you wanted to go straight into? Yeah. You know what? So the, the common, I guess, ideology um, from physiotherapists graduating from a university is that you must do some kind of NHS practice. So you must go and work in the NHS and do your rotations, which basically meant, you know, go and see the elderly people for six months, go and do some orthopedics for six months, uh, respiratory, neurology. You would have to go and do your rotations. I guess being involved with sport for such a long time, from the age of, you know, well, 10 and moving upwards, I'd made some of those connections and some of those people. And even at university, when I was a, a year one student, the year threes that were kind of doing part-time work at football clubs or part-time work in sports centres and stuff like that, I kind of, kind of gravitated towards those people. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of made those networks to say, you know, what can we do and how can we kind of, how can I get on their toes, you know, and get in, get in with them? And that's what I did. So as a year one, I really got into the year twos and year threes. And the year threes then helped me out into that sort of avenue of sport because it's very difficult to go straight into sport. And I was probably, I would say, one of the fortunate ones looking back at 17 years ago that didn't go straight to the NHS, but went straight into professional sports setup. Um, and that's where I learned most of my trade. And it was completely different to what I had learned in the last four years at university. Um, so, yeah, I went straight into, straight into professional sport. I started my career at Charlton Athletic Football Club, Sparrows Lane. Um, big, big shout out to Errol Umut, if he's watching. He gave me my first break. Um, uh, he's a great physiotherapist, obviously worked long-term at Charlton, now has his own place in Kensington. Uh, he gave me my first sort of uh, glance at professional football with the academy. And, and again, from there, never looked back, just enjoyed it so much. Just the vibe, the buzz of being around, kicking a ball, being on a great carpet-like field, you know, being in the treatment room, being with the lads on a bus. It was just, it was just a vibe of a, like I say, a 20, or how was I, finished university, 18, 19, 20, 21 yeah, 21-year-old working. It was, it was great, you know? Yeah, no, I can imagine. Was Wayne Diesel there then? Wayne Diesel was there, yeah, club doctor. Yeah, head club doctor was there. Wayne Diesel was the doctor. At the yeah. time of Les, uh, who was it? Um, Alan Pardew was the manager. We had Les 
Les Reed was there. So, yeah, a few people there at the time. But obviously, I was at the bottom of the food chain. But for me, it, was, it wasn't about that. It was about seeing Marcus Bent and, you know, Darren Bent drive up. And, you know, those sort of things were like a novelty to me, you know. And it was, it was really good to see those sort of things and be so close to that sort of professional environment at such an early stage of my career. And I thought, yeah, I think I've made the right decision if I can grow in this kind of, in, in this kind of field. Yeah, and I can imagine that was great. They had a great team, didn't they, Charles? And then there's... Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Parker, wasn't it? Scott Parker was Scott there. Parker. Scotty Parker, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people there. Yeah, and how was that then? So you're going as a 21-year-old and someone who loves football and all of a sudden you're in, in this environment, Premier League team, um, albeit whatever level that you're play, yeah. you're working with. I, yeah. How did that feel? Yeah, it was surreal, to be fair. And I just said, look, I want to just try and get as much information as I can. You know, I was eager beaver and I thought, you know, I want to, I want to watch what that physiotherapist does. I want to, I want to observe and, and just see what he does and learn my trade a little bit better than I've been taught at university. So I've got the fundamental, I guess, anatomy and physiology from school, from university. Uh, but I now need to learn how to imply, you know, apply that into clinical practice, dealing with a football player is very, very, very different to dealing with a normal weekend warrior or a, or a normal member of the general population. Um, so to learn that quickly, that step was quite daunting. Um, and the way your footballer talked to you, for example, because, you know, you're inexperienced, you're just this young lad in the corner watching something. So there were occasions where, you know, I was talked, I guess, rudely to or talked down upon, you know, whatever word you want to describe. But again, all these failures and these sort of episodes just grow you as a person, you know, makes you want to kind of prove people wrong. Um, and then, you know, from there, you just grow and you just go as a professional and you learn so many things. And then you just look for the next avenue, you know, you want to grasp every single information. Like, 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 like they say, like, you know, Mourinho says, for example, the best coaches learn by stealing from others. You know, and there's no hiding away from that. And I think the physiotherapist or any profession is the same. We learn by watching others and instilling a good part from him or her and then kind of making your own person. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I did. I stole from physios. I stole from fitness coaches, um, strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists. And I just stole little bits here and there and then tried to grow myself as a person. Obviously, yes, I was a physiotherapist, but at the same time, having a wide knowledge of surroundings and surrounding information would always kind of hold you in good stead. And, and so what, what was the next move after Charleston then? Yeah, I guess the next move, my, my first proper job, and again, no disrespect to Charleston, they gave me that opportunity for a year and a half, was Colchester United Football Club. Um, and for me, that is where I became a physiotherapist because I was actually on left my own devices. Um, I had to do research papers. I had to read around the subject. If I didn't know something, I'd go and research it. I'd ask the senior physiotherapist who may have been a little bit old school in his approaches. So I was obviously looking for, you know, new strategies and stuff. Um, but for three years at Colchester United Football Club, working with the sort of elite development squad and then then basically doing, you know, first team as well on weekends and training coverage and stuff. And being there on match days, although there was a senior physiotherapist for the first team, I was always in the stands. And if somebody got injured, it was me taking him into the changing room, making sure I'd assess the injury straight away or if they need any help with equipment, or whatever it may have been, I was really, really involved, you know. And that feeling of turning up to, well, initially it was Layer Road at Colchester, which was like a little small box stadium. It was really, really small, but so close to the pitch, that family feel was amazing. And then they developed a new stadium in my second year, which was the Western Homes Community Stadium, which is a beautiful stadium, um, which is obviously a little bit bigger, 10, 12,000 capacity seated. Um, and then, you know, to play on that pitch during the day when there's no fans there and do some rehab with the players 
And then, for example, you're off it on the weekend when the players are on there. You know, you know, oh, I've been on that pitch. Oh, I've played in that corner. I've done some rehab drills over there. So, you know, so it was like, it was a real surreal environment. And, you know, then you meet people like, you know, A.D. Boothroyd, for example, and Paul Lambert, for example, you know, and you see these guys have been around a long, long time and no football at the back of their hand. And you're, now you're, now they're your bosses kind of thing, you know, because, and you've got to keep them happy. And, you know, if you, I lost a table tennis match, uh, sorry, I beat Paul Lambert at table tennis once, you know, and uh, we were playing in the changing room and he was really pissed off. I'm sorry to use that language. He was really angry with me. And he ended up fining me 20 pounds, which for me as a 20, four three 23 year old was a lot of money you know 20 pounds was like why are you finding me gaffer i've just beat yeah well you're bragging about it to all the other players and i don't like that you know so you know you learn you live and learn so i never did that again um, but i was lucky to work with some of these managers and you know who'd been around a long time and paul lambert took colchester he left went to norwich promoted them went to villa promoted uh, sorry got him to two years in the premier league done really really well for himself um, so, you know, you just learn management strategies as well as just your own physiotherapy techniques as well. So, yeah, I think Colchester was the the place where I developed the most and really learned my trade. Yeah, that's impressive. To have beaten the Champions League winner that, at table tennis, that is impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, we can look at it like that as well. <laughs> so I, I saw that you've, um, you did the, the Football Rehab Masters as well at Edge Hill. Yeah. That was with Mark Leather. That was with Mark Leather, legend, um, absolute legend. Um, he's still doing master's programs and stuff like that. And again, you know, that was something that, because at that time I was like, you know what, football is everything. At Coach Star, I said, football is everything. I'm just going to do more education on football. And of course, you know, you, you learn from your mistakes and there's a whole world out there. You know what I mean? So I was like, I need to do a master's. And I did explore, you know, healthcare management and other sort of uh, sporting based degrees but this one appealed to me the most because I just thought I would be in football for the rest of my life because I loved it so much you know and um, 16, 17 years down the line I'm, I'm doing something completely different but you know you don't think like that and uh, it was going up to Edge Hill University and, and seeing that and doing lots about media press learning more about the injury rehab um, and obviously live case studies and stuff like that and that was good it was a distant learning kind of but also face to face as well that was over two to three years I think um, and again, you know, you've got your master's qualification, which is, which is obviously great um, on the paper as well. You've got that little, you know, the little certificate to say, I've, I've done it. And so that's great. But also, again, taught me the sort of, because I dealt with physiotherapists that had been in the football environment for probably 15 to 20 years. David Fever, Fozzie was there. So there was a lot of people who had been uh, in the environment working at Blackburn, Bolton, you know, big, big clubs at the time. Um, so they were just kind of, again, sharing their wealth of information you know whether that was a clinical examination or just a story from one of the lads Gary Speed or whoever it might have been and it was a fantastic learning curve um so yeah that, that was something I, I don't regret doing it I do really I really enjoy that but I think if I'd gone back after my undergraduate I think I might have done something else looking at where my career has taken me since then Right. Yeah, interesting. I know Mark very well. So Mark was my football manager, actually. So I played for him for two years with his sons. Okay. So yeah, he's, he's, he's as big a character as a manager. As oh, brilliant. Football brilliant. And then, so in terms of like the network of doing a course like that, did you stay in touch with the other people that are on, on that course? Yeah. Yeah. Some people, again, some people worked into football. Some people are still working in football. Um, some people started their own yoga business related to football. 
Some people went into the media because it was a lot of media. We learned about a lot about the media pressures and stuff and the external pressures of football and stuff like that. So some people went into the media. Um, and yeah, we know these days social media is so rife. You can just send somebody a message or follow somebody or just see. So I wouldn't say regular communication with those people on my course. I think it was about 16 of us on the course. But you see what they're getting up to on a daily basis, you know, and some of them are still in football, Premier League, Championship clubs, and some of them are doing their own things and open their own private practices and stuff. So I guess the world's your oyster once you've got your qualifications and you, and you know where you want to go. You can just kind of go to any avenue, I guess. And, and that's what happened with, with me, I guess. And so in terms of like the social media side, was that something from that course or, or from other avenues that you thought, I need to be engaging more on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc.? So, so I missed the first part, Andy. Say that again. So was, did getting a good social media presence, was that something that you actively thought about? Nothing at all. I am not a social media person. I've only grown to be a social media person since January 2021. Nothing before that. I was not the least interested in social media. But from January 2021, my wife encouraged me to say, look, you've got so much experience. You've been around the world. Uh, you've worked in a few countries. Why don't you just start doing an educational kind of platform? It doesn't have to be about yourself. Pictures of yourself, you know, having a coffee and all this sort of stuff. Just start promoting education. Um, find something that you enjoy and, and, and that's what people want to hear these days people want, don't want to read big journals or they haven't got time for that they want to just scroll look pick up a, a gem from a particular assessment or pick up a you know real important point um, and then kind of store that in their memory like we used to do we used to watch and steal from physios but we had to actually write things down in case we forgot them because there wasn't social media at the time um, so no January 2021 was when I started my social media platform on Instagram um, and, and then from there, I just started posting things that were physiotherapy related. Obviously, got some inspiration from other people who had been obviously posting for years. Um, but yeah, before that, mate, I was not interested. And to be honest, I'm still not interested, really. I've got to be honest with you. I'm not really interested in social media, but I think it's the way forward. And I've got to move away from my sort of old school approach mentality of pen and paper. I've still got pen and paper here. I always have that for jotting things down. Um, I don't think you lose that, you know, that's just what we're, what's ingrained in us. Um, but yeah, the, the social media content now, I think it has to be done um, for, for educating the next kind of batch of people coming into the world of physiotherapy, rehabilitation, sports therapy, sports massage, I guess, strength and conditioning coaches. They all are coming into the sort of big bad world of professional sport thinking it's all glamorous and it's not the most glamorous. Um, <laughs> it's painted to be glamorous, but it's it's hard work. It's really hard work for Bob. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, so I was trying to find some photos of you to do the post this morning. And, yeah, you, you certainly don't promote yourself on the pictures. It was hard to find one. Probably a good thing, mate. <laughs> Probably a good thing. Um, no, yeah, it's just one of those things. There are loads of photos, but, again, I don't post them avidly and stuff. You know, there's been pro athletes I've treated in the last 10 years, um, you know, huge personalities. But, you know, it's just one of those things that, you respect their sort of dignity as well. You know, they don't care. But also some of them might say to you, you know, please don't post that. It's a very intimate picture of, of me, you know, stretching you or you massaging my buttock or whatever it may be. Do you know what I mean? So um, back in the days, I didn't, I didn't promote any of this stuff. And I've just got these stored away in my, in my little um, Google Drive, which is just memories for me that, you know, I've, I've done it. I've been in football for more than 11 years. I've, you know, I've, I've been around and now I'm doing something, another avenue of my life. Um, but 
who knows? I think when my children grow up and are a little bit more independent and self-sufficient, I think it may well be something that I would like to do again in the future, um, maybe in five, six years' time from now that I would like to get back into football. But, you know, you never know what happened, what's around the corner, do you? No, no, exactly. And you mentioned some of the things that you've done overseas. Just mentioned things that you've done. Yeah, so, I, 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 again, it was, I was sitting on my office in Colchester and I got a call from Gary Lewin. Random call from Gary Lewin. He was like, Fraz, is that you? I was like, yeah, hi, Gary. And I'd met him on a few conferences and I'd asked him a couple of questions about me being a young physiotherapist trying to make it like yourself as a role model. What do I need to do? And he said to me, never be afraid of questioning, son. If you don't know something, you don't know it. You know, Just say, ring me up or ring somebody who does know it or go and find the information. Patients and players will respect you more. Don't just try and waffle because people will catch you out. Um, and he called me up one day and said, you know, um, are you interested in going to Azerbaijan? I was like, not really. <laughs> and he said to me, well, you know, Tony's going out there. Tony Adams is going out there. He's been given a sort of an open checkbook to go and, you know, um, develop a football club uh, from grassroots level. And he's been given the task of within three years, get the club into the Europa League. Okay. I'm thinking, I'm thinking well, where, where is Azerbaijan? What is Azerbaijan? You know, and I'm thinking, he goes, look, have a think about it. Speak to Tony. Go and meet him. And I meant, go and meet him in London at his offices and go and, go and see what it's all about. You know, you might enjoy it. Um, I went to meet Tony in, uh, in London and uh, he explained to me, showed me all these plans and maps and stadium development and pitches development and gym development. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm 24 and I'm being given an opportunity to go abroad with Tony Adams. I don't have any other responsibilities. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Do I or do I not? You know, and it was a quite, you know, yeah, the monetary side of things was important. Um, there was a nice financial package for somebody at the age of 24 to go out there to Azerbaijan, the Caspian Sea, or, or rich country and thinking, yeah, south of Russia, I can go across to Turkey. I can travel two, three hours to Dubai if I want, if I'm there, if I've got some time off. So, yeah, why not? Um, so I, I, took, I took the plunge and I said, yeah, all right, I'll go for it. So I left Colchester and I went to Azerbaijan with Tony Adams, Gary Stevens, Daryl Willard, uh, who I still speak to, uh, all three of them uh, quite often. Um, and that was a cultural shock, to be honest. That was phenomenal. I mean, the language barrier... The, the 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 stern faces of the sort of Russian and the Azeri people, you know, ex-Soviet Union country. Um, you didn't know whether they were happy or whether they were sad. The quality of football wasn't great. Um, just the treatment room. I walked into the treatment room and there was one bed and there was a cat in the corner. I remember this distinctly. There was a cat on the corner on the windowsill and there was a couple of tapes and uh, I think some injections. I think that's what I saw. That was my treatment room, you know. And he said to me, you're going to go then develop the whole medical infrastructure. You know, as a 24-year-old who'd only had three, maybe four years of experience in the UK, one at academy level, and then the Colchester as my kind of first real role, it was, I was thrown in the deep end, and it was a challenge, you know. And, um, and that's when I kept in touch with Gary and Colin, you know, because of through Tony, they gave me the numbers, and I, I kept in touch with them. I, you know, wasn't sure about injuries, or wasn't sure about a particular a device or a treatment apparatus that I might have needed or a rehab piece of equipment I might have needed, what's happening in the UK, what's new, you know, those sort of things. And that was, again, more of, I would say, not more of a professional development, more of a kind of a personal development and learning a new language, um, a new culture, new food, new weather, because it was freezing, you know, minus 
21 in the winter, for example, you know, and you're playing in January, December, and it's uh, December, January, and it's freezing cold, you know. So um, that was three three years in Azerbaijan, which was uh, a real experience. But, but the best part of it was, you know, Saturday afternoons, we'd log on, we'd go to Tony's hotel, and we'd sit and we'd watch, we'd watch Saturday and Sunday football. You know, we'd grab some food together, the four or five of us who were there, the, the British lads, you know, and it would be just two, three hours of watching the football. And that was our kind of get out from we're not in Azerbaijan now. We're back at, we're back at home in the pub watching a bit of footy. And, you know, that, that kept us sane really for, I guess, the three years that we were all out there. Um, and, and, and then, yeah, and I don't know where to go, Azerbaijan. I'm just, I'm, I'm laughing under my breath because obviously we've got some real fond stories there. Um, and, and then from there was the next chapter was the UAE, you know, United Arab Emirates. And, and that's where I spent 10 years, the last 10 years. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is amazing that you were in Azerbaijan for three years. That that would have been really interesting. And so what made, what prompted the move then to UAE? Um, well, Tony Adam, Tony Adam lost his job. Um, he didn't achieve his goal that he wanted to achieve with the club, predominantly because of the player quality, external factors and stuff, not because of he wasn't a good manager. Um, and I just thought to myself, okay, I've been here three years. When he left, I was kind of they didn't get rid of me. They kept me on as a physiotherapist. But then I was working with people not from the same mentality or mindset, if that makes sense. Um, very, very different approaches of doing things. Um, for example, injection therapy for an ankle sprain to get them out to play, you know. And it was all kind of getting a bit unethical, to be honest, certain things. And I had to kind of look for the kind of the next stage. And my brother was working in Dubai and he said to me, why don't you just come out on the winter break? We had two weeks winter break. Come out and just just see what's around you know you might like the UAE I was like oh go on then so I went there and I just literally waltzed into the clubs I mean there was no like appointment structure you know the Arab mentality was like everyone's welcome you know come and come and see what's going on so you just walked into a club put my CV on the table and the first question the guy asked me he was wearing his you know um, his, his hat his traditional wear and he said to me how much money do you want you know and I said to him like you know can we have a chat first about you know what I can bring to the table or what you're looking for yeah, 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 come, come, come. So I went to two or three clubs and, yeah, within not even scheduling an interview or applying for a job, I literally just walked in with my CV and said, here you go. And they looked at the table and it's okay, three plus four, UK, Azerbaijan, physiotherapist, rehab specialist, da, da, da. okay, come on board. You can work with our first team. So that was it. And it just went from there, you know, and for the next, I did three years, one, two, three, four, five years in professional football. Uh, so for four years in professional football in the UAE, uh, great part of the world, highly, highly recommend it. Um, beautiful weather, very hot, but the luxury lifestyle, if you want to kind of live in that bubble for a while, I highly recommend it. But then at some point you need to kind of come out and that was happened. That happened in basically what, June 2022, where I decided to take the plunge back home to the UK. So before we come on to that bit then, so were you living, was this in Abu Dhabi then? I was in Abu Dhabi for six years and Dubai for four years. Okay, which teams are you working with then? Um, so it was Al Wahda Club and Bani Yas Club were the two clubs in Abu Dhabi. And then in Dubai, I didn't work for a club. I went into sort of private practice and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, again, nice environment to work with some, you know, Spanish coaches learning a bit of Spanish, Uruguayan coaches learning a bit of Uruguayan learning Iraqi coach, learning a bit of Iraqi, Arabic language, you know, and then just just the whole culture of trying to get a player in at 9.30 in the morning for a bit of treatment. The guy, the coach said to me, what are you doing? Don't bother. Why are you wasting your time, you know? 
I was like, well, you know, the gaffer wants to know if the players are available for 6 p.m. training and I need to see him in the morning, make sure I can make that clinical judgment. Don't waste your time. People come in to see me at, you know, 5.45 p.m., 15 minutes before kickoff, uh, training starts, you know. My ankle's hurting for us. Can you have a look at it? Well, I've told the gaffer you're playing already, you know. So those sort of cultural shocks were there. Um, obviously, they'd have to train at 8 p.m. in the evening. You know, sometimes even 10 p.m. in the evening, depending on the weather situation. We never trained in the morning. Uh, and if we did, it would have been a 10 o'clock rehab session uh, or a gym session. It would never have been outdoors. It's just way too hot. Um, so it was always training at that sort of 6 p.m. and beyond, I'd say. And during that Ramadan times where, you know, people are fasting and they're fasting till 6 and they've got to go to pray. So we would be training around 9.30, 10 p.m. We'd finish by midnight or 12.30. By the time we did a bit of treatment and, you know, wrapping up the sort of injuries it'll be one o'clock in the morning and you get home you know you sit around by 2 a.m you sleep but then you didn't have to get up in the morning right because there was no treatment stuff in the morning so you had a bit of a lie and it was and that, you know and that's where I, I had both my children you know so i had that had a chance to kind of really be there as a as a fatherly figure and a dad because you know, i'm happy to say it on screen i mean i wasn't i was from a very dysfunctional family my dad was never around so I always thought, you know, if I can have this and make sure that I'm around to see my kids grow and develop uh, into their own personalities, I want to be there. And that football environment in the UAE allowed me to do that initially, early early stages, because I was always at home in the morning and, you know, doing the whole nappy routines and feeding routines and sleeping routines. It was brilliant, you know. And then in the evening, I'd shoot off and my missus would take over. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, no, it sounds like it's, that circumstance was actually beneficial, though it might be a bit of a slightly abnormal one for... <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, so you worked in Dubai for a bit in private practice, and then what, what prompted you to come back to the UK? Yeah, yeah good question. Uh, I get asked this question all the time by my colleagues who are still in the UAE. What are you doing? What are you thinking? And even here, people come to me, what are you doing coming back to this country? Um, I guess there was three reasons. Um, one, the, the main reason is that my mum and dad aren't getting any younger. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I thought, you know, I've been out of the country 13-odd years. I've seen them intermittently. Uh, in that time uh, but obviously COVID happened and I didn't get back for what three years maybe more four years uh, my kids were growing up and I said you know I think yeah maybe the time's time's right take the plunge go back home and just let them enjoy the grandkids for as long as they have to live Do you know what I mean that was one of my main reasons uh, secondly was I guess the growth of a physiotherapist in that part of the world is not as great or paramount paramount as it is here um, you can easily get stuck into this kind of day-to-day -day activity, day-to-day -day clinical practice, and you don't grow as a professional in terms of being around really good, like-minded people um, who test your boundaries, who make you learn above and beyond your scope of practice. Um, and for example, you know, I'm a physiotherapist and a rehab specialist, great, but I, I, wouldn't, I want to do injection therapy, for example, to be able to inject somebody in case they have a problem that I think will benefit from an injection. There was so much red tape, I couldn't do that there or independent prescribing, which is available in the UK. I'd be a prescriber. I can prescribe some opioids or some non-steroid or anti-inflammatory drugs. I couldn't do that there. It was just red tape. The doctor has to do that sort of stuff, or the orthopedic surgeon, for example. Um, so in terms of clinical growth, I decided to come back, although for a lot less money, and I'm happy to say that on camera. It doesn't matter. I mean, people have said to me, what are you doing? You know, you're going to go and pay taxes. You've got a tax-free money here. But we got to bear in mind that schools are costly there. You know, you're going to be sending your kid, two kids to British school, expensive. You've got your rent costs, expensive. All coming out of your package at the end of the month sort of thing, you know what I mean? So 
Um, and then you've got the hidden charges like you know, the toll tunnels, for example, the service fee, tourism fee. So it's a tax-free country. It looks like a tax-free country, but there are hidden costs uh, that we have to obviously be aware of. And I think if I weighed up the options of how much money I was taking at the end of the month with how much money I could be getting here, it wasn't massively, massively different. And I thought, well, well if I'm not earning you know, cash loads of money, then it doesn't really make sense me being here anymore. Um, and obviously the last one was my kids. Because I, not that I wanted them to grow up in a difficult environment like I grew up in, you know, stacking shelves at the age of 12 in the local Londis or spa, whatever you used to call it. That's what I did growing up, you know. I don't want my kids to have that sort of hardship, but they needed to understand that they were living in a bubble, you know. And the bubble was, was always going to burst at some point, you know. It's great while it lasts, but the bubble there for kids having nannies, it's not normal here. You know, having somebody wash your car for you three times a week outside your doorstep is not normal here. Um, you know, having a gardener who'd come and weed your plants and water your plants and clean your children's toys two or three times a week is not normal here. Um, and the last example I'll probably give you is having petrol delivered to your house <laughs> through an app and you don't have to do anything is not normal here. So <laughs> I, although I enjoyed it while I, it was there, I just thought, you know, my kids have to see what real life is about. You know, they have to see homeless people. They have to see the influences of alcohol and drunkards on the road. They, they have to be exposed to these things because if they come back and stay here all their life in Dubai or UAE or Qatar or any part of that world, um, when they go to university, if it's not in that part of the world, it's going to be a massive, massive shock to their system learning how to, you know, make pasta or put, you know, use, a, use the washing machine, for example, without any assistance because it, you just become so engrossed in this beautiful lifestyle in Dubai. Of, it, it, it's nice. It makes you lazy, but you enjoy it while you can. Do you know what I mean? So I did enjoy my time there, but I just thought it was time. I do miss it. People ask me now, do you miss Dubai? You must enjoy it. You know, the weather is so crap here. And I was like, no, well, I don't mind a bit of rain or a bit of sleet. It's nice. It, it rains once a year over there. So I'm enjoying a bit of rain and stuff like that. But yeah, that, they're the three reasons that I guess prompted me to come back and, and start my new new life back in the UK, really, or second second wind of life back in the UK. And where did you move back to? Uh, I'm based in Hampshire. Um, I, and again, the same thing. From January 2022 to June 2022, six months, I just loads of interviews. I, and again, not blowing my own trumpet, I was getting interviews left, right and centre from London, from other parts of the UK. And I said to my wife, if I go back to UK, I do not want to work in central London. Although the monetary, uh, would, monetary sort of uh, in incentives would be better working in London. But I'm sorry, I'm not going back for that busy hustle and bustle lifestyle. I want to just switch off. And I decided to come to the Hampshire region, live in the countryside. I've got woodlands behind my house. Um, and I wanted my children to explore that nature because all they'd seen is sand and desert and buildings, <laughs> high-rise buildings for for nine years of their or nine my boys nine and my girls six so they hadn't seen anything else do you know what i mean so i wanted them to come and explore nature and see what it what, what there is to offer what uk does have to offer um and, and yeah so i'm in the hampshire region um loving it actually quiet you know it's a bit quiet i'm a bit old school like that <laughs> all you see is like old people walking their dogs and a couple of runners and stuff like that you don't see anything else which is which is what i wanted <laughs> yeah and so you're happy with the decision? The family have all settled back in and everything? Yeah, the families have all settled. The kids, it took, you know, kids are more resilient than us, to be honest. Um, my wife, who's been born in, in that part of the world, she was born, she's born in Abu Dhabi, actually. 
Um, so she was the first time she's actually living in the UK. She's been on numerous occasions to the UK, but it's the first time she's living here. So for her, um, was a shock because she wears the hijab, right? So she, she, she's a Muslim. She wears the hijab. And for her, it was a bit like, you know, okay, I want to embrace it. I said, well, yeah, embrace it. You know, no problem. I'll support you all the way. No problem at all. But you're going to have some looks. You're going to have some questions. Um, you're going to have people ask you, you know, do you take it off, et cetera, et cetera. So she found it quite difficult for the first three to four months. Um, she also finds it difficult the fact that it's dark in the morning and dark when she comes back from work. She goes, I can't handle that. I need sun. I've, all my life, I had sun. Um, and I've come back here now and I don't get some. So that depresses her a little bit. Um, but the kids, they've learned lots of things. They've learned, you know, you, you hear some uh, terrible language on the side of the road or you hear terrible language in school or you see a homeless person or you see some alcohol bottles or cans on the floor. They've never seen that. They've never seen that in their life in Dubai. So um, it, it's questioning. And I, I want them to question. I want them to ask me lots of questions. And, I, you know, we sit down with them and we we kind of come up with like little case studies and we come up with little scenarios. That if, this, if this happened and you were here, what would you do? Oh, okay. I'll do, you know, so it's about getting them to learn their new surroundings really, because they've been so sheltered uh, in Dubai. And not that that's a bad thing. They've been protected. It's the safest country in the world. I would always say that what is the safest countries in the world, UAE, Qatar, wonderful places, really good to me for 11 years, but you know, you've got to move on at some point. And, and I thought the time was right. And I said, I would, I would always go back if somebody offered me something uh, in the future, I would consider it. Um, but right now, I think for the next couple of years, I'm, I'm, I'm happy being in the UK. Yeah. And do you have any, any grand plan or things? You're still open to open minded to those sort of trips, but do you have any things that you do want to do and achieve? Um, well, yeah, good, good point And a good question. I mean, I, I do want to, I can't be a physiotherapist all my life. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't. I, I, not, not, not so much that I'm doing much hands-on work anymore. I'm not. I'm doing more sort of advanced physiotherapy practitioner role, which basically means more triaging and making sure people have been given the right diagnosis. We've ruled out anything sinister and, and then guide them on to what they need. And that's fine. Um, I, would ra I would like to get involved with education. So whether that's with a university and do some teaching for the, for the next kind of cohort coming through, or potentially maybe in the future design my own course um, for physiotherapy. You know, some people do it a lot, shoulders, hips. You know, I'm sure you discussed last week or a couple of weeks ago with Mehmet. He does his own sort of hip course. Uh, I have a keen interest in foot and ankle, so that's something I might consider in the future. Um, but right now, people have said to me, you know, you've come back in the UK. Not as many people know you as they did in the UAE. So get your social media platform going. Write a few blogs get noticed around and then maybe in a year or two you can maybe come up with a course if that's what you want to do um and yeah at some point you know probably knock off a couple of days where i'm working at the moment for pure um although they've been really really good to me and allow me lots of flexibility and then maybe have my own little private private gig on the side foot and ankle pathologies where i can just kind of center on that and maybe do some consultancy work with some with some sports club or you know the, the world's your oyster but <laughs> You know, and again, there's so many countries coming up over and beyond. You know, you've got some African countries with with lots of money, lots of development. You've got some you know, South American countries, lots of money and development. And you never know where your CV might end up on LinkedIn. And somebody reaches out to you and say, do you want to come to, I don't know, Peru and open a new rehab center? I'll go tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm really keen on those sort of new startups now because I've done that. I've got that experience. I know what, to, what it involves. And, um, and, and. I think just, just for the next couple of years, let my kids settle down, get them, get a bit older, 
be a bit more independent, and then I can then I can start exploring a few more avenues. I mean, I'm only 37. I look 56, but I've got a few. I've got a few. Uh, <laughs> I've got a few years yet. No, it's exciting. I'm sure. I'm sure your wife would be happy to get to Peru, be a bit warmer than in the UK. Yeah, mate. No, she, yeah. She, she's open. She's open to to all plans. But again, like I said, we just come back, and I think it's just one of those things. You know, everyone does it these days. All families shift. It's it's easy days. There's so many cargo things you just you just do it you don't have to do much to be honest just all the visa and paperwork to be honest but yeah i think i've just literally like i said i've been back july 2022 i've been back six months and i think i want to just kind of hold my horses a little bit get a bit of nhs experience get a bit uk experience um and then yeah who knows what the next couple of years might hold sounds exciting and you mentioned Mehmet. i know he's a big arsenal fan so we'll be very yeah. when they've got a big game at the weekend who do yeah. you yeah, I would say I'm a gooner as well. Um, I'd have to be because obviously, I mean, growing up was always the North. My family was split. You know, it was it was, it was Tottenham or, or Arsenal. And then obviously when I when I started working with the likes of you know Gary and Colin and Tony Adams, and I was like, you know, I think I have to say Arsenal um, because <laughs> I was just so engrossed in that sort of the, the Arsenal heritage, as Mourinho would say, is just one of those things. You know, just it was always about Arsenal stories and and learning from certain injuries and players. So, yeah, I think that's where I would say my, my allegiances lie. So we're doing okay at the moment. Um, let's see what happens. Um, I don't know if we can withstand the pressure in the next three, four months, but Mick, oh, Mickey's doing a good job. Incredible. Yeah, no, Mehmet was quite quite down about it as well. He wasn't as, he was very, very cautious about it. But no, it's good to see them, good to see them back at the top. But Absolutely. Carlos, I really appreciate your time on this. Thank you for coming on live. First time I've done it, but yeah, I think we're... Um, We've just about got over doing it, so hopefully, hopefully it all comes out well. But thank you very much for sharing and for telling us all the stories, and good luck with whatever you've got coming up. Thanks, Andy. I really appreciate you inviting me as your 100th guest, and uh, I look forward to seeing more guests on the show in the future. Good, man. Great. Have a good one. Have a lovely weekend. Take care, mate. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.